because as good as that is and as funny as it is to look and we can kind of make fun, this is truly the reality for the majority of the world. And unfortunately, it's the reality for the majority of Christian men and women or those who call themselves followers of Christ. You see, we typically have in our own minds this idea and understanding of Jesus that is singular. So we can, we can look to the manger. And as you see, the stage is set up a little bit different today. It's for part of what's going to take place today but you see the manger there and we understand that Jesus came down and he is the babe in the manger and we love that Jesus because he is small and he is little and he needs us to pick him up and to cuddle him and to take care of him and when we're uh, on those dark days we can pick him up and be comforted by the smell of the newborn baby and just uh, coddle him in our arms and let life kind of disappear there's not much better than the feel of a newborn baby laying on your chest as you are warm and cozy. It sends most of us right off to sleep. And then there are many of us who, if you look between the manger and the cross, this open space of Jesus' life, this is what Dr. Stephen Smith would call uh, the hippie Jesus for most, especially Americans. This is the one who was chilling out in his Birkenstocks and in his sandals, cruising around town in his van. He would get out and he'd take care of the homeless. He'd feed everybody. He'd love everybody. He'd fill all the needs that people had. And he would just preach love and love and love and make love and not war. And that's the image that so many of us want to have of Jesus. This idea that Jesus is contained in the days of his life and it was man that Jesus right there if we could just have that Jesus right there then everything would be good if if we could just love that's it just give me Jesus and give me love and take everything else that's the world's mantra that's what the world tells the church you need to go back to meeting the needs of people like Jesus met the needs of people and then for many of us we have Jesus on the cross Jesus is on our crucifix, and we don't want him to come down. We don't want the blood-stained, dripping, beaten Jesus to come down. Or maybe we even like that image because it reminds us that he did something for me because we are so self-centered and so self-giving that it is really all about us. And when we keep him right there on the cross, he can't come down and do anything to get in the way of our lives and harm us. And yes, all of those in some senses are true. God did come as a baby in a manger to dwell amongst his people. He did live a life that was perfect and just, and it did meet the needs of the people that he met, although misconstrued by many. And he did hang on that cross and pour out his blood to cover the sins of you and of me. All of those are very true, but today I want us 
to begin to have a more complete picture of who Jesus really is. Because the video still falls short of giving us a complete and total picture of who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he is going to do. Because Jesus doesn't start at the manger. Jesus is pre-existing before time and is involved in creation. And he doesn't stop after the tomb, but has ascended to the right hand of the Father and at this moment sits on his throne awaiting the second advent to come and reign forever. Jesus will rule forever. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, because today I want to take us into a very familiar passage and give us a, an understanding of that text. I want us to see what the Word of God says and maybe even open up uh, your eyes and minds to a different view of this text. Many of you have sat in my classes here at Iron City and understand a little bit about what is about to come, not a full picture. And then I want to take us to probably a very rarely preached text because most pastors, most preachers are afraid of the book of Revelation. And so when we finish Isaiah 9, you can go ahead and mark your finger in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. And so as we come to Isaiah, and we're going to read in just a moment, verses 6 and 7, we need to understand that this is written about the child who is to come. But even as it is written about the child who is to come, there is a complete understanding that we don't know everything about this child to come and that there will be some extremely unique things about this child. This prophecy, as it's written out in the book of Isaiah, is a prophecy that brings hope to the people of Israel. It's a prophecy that brings hope to them because God is revealing through his prophet Isaiah that one day he will send someone to bring them out of their bondage, to bring them out of their slavery, to bring them back to the promised land of God and that God will take their enemies and judge them. And as we see, I'm going to read verses 5, 6, and 7. So if you would, stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. In verse 5, he opens and he says, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You may be seated. You see, as we come to verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 9, there's something different here that most of the time around the Christmas season, 
We don't back up into the context of the chapter and see what all is being said about this coming one. We, we look to the manger and we see the manger and we see the babe that's coming and we know that there's going to be great things placed upon him, but we want to point this toward the manger and this passage does exactly that. But if you can... Imagine with me Isaiah as he's writing this prophecy, as God is laying out before him the truths that he wants him to share, that Isaiah has this image maybe of a manger. We don't know exactly what's going on or what's to be seen, but we definitely know that that's in view. But also, if you can imagine, there's something else. There's something beyond the manger that Isaiah is seeing, and he is seeing something that's distinct and different because he goes into calling this child things that only can be called of God. And so as he does this, I reference back to verse 5 because the battle in this time has raged. All of the garments of war, all of the boots of the soldiers, all of the blood-stained fatigues are going to be gathered up and put in a pile and, as Isaiah says, used for fuel for the fire. There will be no more need of them because from now on the battle is going to look much different. And he says, for us a child is born and a son is given. And yes, this would have some immediate fulfillment in the near future of Isaiah's time. But he's looking here to the 600 years or so forward where Jesus is going to be born in a manger. And he's continuing to point to the thousands of years that are yet to come when Isaiah is writing this, when Jesus will return. This passage is looking at the first advent and the second advent. And I believe that even more distinctly it's looking at the second advent than it is at the first advent. I think it, it's glimpsing the first advent on its way to the second advent so that we can see what God has in store. And he says, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. This baby is going to be unique. He's going to bear the, the world upon his shoulders. He's going to bear something different upon him. He's going to be a king. He's going to bear the weight of government. He's going to bear the weight of reigning. He's going to bear the weight of ruling upon his shoulders. And this baby one day will be king. And because of that, he's given some very special names. Wonderful counselor. Now, let me just be clear. When this passage is referring to Jesus as a wonderful counselor, it's not the one that brings you into his office and sets you down in a chair and asks you to open up your heart and share your feelings so that he can make you feel better about yourself. He is truly an extraordinary strategist. He is one in this context and in this passage, this Hebrew word is looking for one who is all wise in military action. 
He is a wonderful counselor because he knows everything. He understands his enemies inside and out. He knows every move they have made, every move they will make, and every move they possibly could make. He is an extraordinary strategist who has a master plan and is working it out from beginning to end. We're seeing the fulfillment, the outworking of the gospel of Jesus itself in the midst of these verses because the gospel truly is God invading his world to bring about what he desires and that is his glory and his honor and for all people to come to him so that they might bring praise and glory to his name and that he will be made much of and we will be made little of. He is a wonderful counselor, but he's not going to comfort those in this setting. He's not coming to give you peace because he's coming as a mighty God. The Hebrew word here is gabor. And if you just listening to the word, the bring out the guttural sounds of the body, this in other passages we're going to, to translate as a valiant warrior, someone who is mighty, someone who is brave, someone who understands what it takes and is capable. This is looking at the omnipotent God for who he is and the fact that that omnipotent God is coming to dwell on earth as a babe in a manger, but one day he will return as king and he's going to rule forever. This truly is the mighty God because what good would it be to have the perfect strategy? What good would it be to have all the wisdom that was necessary? What good would it be to have all the knowledge and understanding if you did not have the might and the power and the strength to carry out the plan that you had put in place? We don't serve a God who is lacking anything. We serve a God who has everything, and he comes in all wisdom and in all might to know the plan and to fulfill the plan just as he has put it in motion and set it into being. Jesus is coming and he will be wonderful counselor and mighty God. And he will do so in love and the care and the compassion for his people as an everlasting father. He's not going away. He's not going to be the image that is so shamefully given to fathers by our world of some that are here and then gone, some that don't love, they abuse. He is the everlasting father, full of love, full of wisdom, full of power, but laying it out for his people, sacrificing himself so that you and I could come into a perfect relationship with him. This is a beautiful picture of what a father really is to look like. One who is wiser than his children. One who is stronger than his children. And one who loves them more than they can, they can even fathom until they have children of their own. Because we don't get it. We're just like our children. We think we love God more than he loves us. We think we know God's plan more than we know. We think we know God more than we actually do. But he's opening up our eyes to, hey, I am the wonderful counselor. I know everything. I am the mighty God. I am able to do everything 
but yet I love you. I love my children, and I'm doing this. I'm coming for them, and he will be the prince of peace because let me tell you what happens when the extraordinary strategist returns as the almighty God who so deeply loves his children that he's willing to do anything for them. He wipes away his enemies and he reigns in peace and truth and love because there is no one left in rebellion against him. This isn't the soft, sad little story of a baby in a manger going to be wrapped in swaddling clothes needed to be kept warm by his mommy on a cold night. This is the story of a mighty heavenly father invading earth with a plan that is beyond our capabilities to understand and to know, but the understanding that it will come to fruition. And when it does, the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. There will be no corner of rebellion. There will be no pocket of his enemies. There will be no one left. thinks more of themselves than they do of him. There'll be no one left who is more consumed with self than they are consumed with him. There'll be no one left to stand in rebellion to him. And as he reigns perfectly sitting on the throne of David, I'm not just imagining these things. If you if, if If I can, let me open up to Psalm 144. In Psalm 144, verses 1 and 2, it says this, Of David, blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. David experienced a portion of this idea and concept of God that Isaiah is laying bare for us and for his people in in his day here in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. And he now, in the second advent, is going to come and he's going to be the Davidic king that was promised, the one who's going to rightly rule forever, the one who is going to be perfect. He is the one who David called Lord and he is going to sit on his throne and reign in justice and love and righteousness. Because once he establishes his kingdom to its fullest, he's going to do what he's done with all creation from the beginning of time. He's going to uphold it. Because you see right now we're living in the midst of the kingdom of God. Jesus has come in the first advent and he has ushered in his kingdom. But it has not come to its complete fulfillment as it will in the second advent as Isaiah is truly looking at right now. Isaiah sees this and he sees this kingdom. He understands that he's going to rule and he's going to reign and he's going to do all of these things. 
He's going to do it with justice. He's going to do it with righteousness this time and forevermore. Once this kingdom is fully established as Jesus would have it to be established, it's not going away. The kingdom that Jesus ushered in in the first advent will come to a fulfillment and a fruition in the second advent, but the kingdom he ushered in in the first advent is not going away. It is forevermore. It's continuing on and on and on throughout eternity. And Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How else except through the power and the might and the wisdom and the glory of God could any of these things be? There is no eternal kingdom that lasts forever with a perfect ruler other than when God does it, when God puts him in place, and when that ruler is God himself. Jesus is coming again to establish his kingdom completely. And when he does, he's going to reign from the throne of David. His enemies will be disposed of. He loves his people. He demonstrates his might. And there's no more need for strategies because the battle is won. It's all over. He sits on his throne and reigns as king. I today want to show you what it's going to look like when the zeal of the Lord of hosts does this. Because I think if you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 19, I believe that the zeal of the Lord of hosts accomplishing what Isaiah 9 says is going to be accomplished. I believe that when we turn to the book of Revelation in chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, we see exactly how this is going to play out and exactly what this is going to look like. Isaiah 19, 11 says, And then I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And his name, a name written on that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. That Jesus, that Jesus, that Jesus, 
One day will be that Jesus seated on the victory horse about to ride into battle. He's already on the horse of victory before he even enters the battle. Because let me tell you, the war has been won. The victory is his. And it started before time began. It happened in creation. It followed through in the manger. It followed through to the cross. And by George, one day he's going to come and we're going to see it all worked out fully and completely. God is coming. And when he comes, he's not coming as a baby on a manger, but a king on a stallion. Because he is God. The victory was won before creation. The reason for this battle is simply those who refuse to submit to the will of God are still here. And he will not have it forever. Because you know that love that the Father has. That love that he has that says he knows everything. That love that he has that says I love you deeply. That love that that person that he is as mighty God, all wise and all knowing, understands this. That he has been patient and patient and patient. And every step of history he has invaded and taken charge of and manipulated and worked and twisted it just as he sees fit. Nothing out of his control, nothing happening that he did not put in motion. And one day he will have been patient long enough. Our long-suffering God will come back to wipe away his enemies and they will be destroyed. But ladies and gentlemen, yes, I cry out with John the Revelator, Come, Lord Jesus, come. But I want you to see and understand the image and the picture that is to come, and it is not a pretty sight. The magnificent warrior is returning to battle, and everyone who opposes him will fall at his feet. There are no other We see in this text that John is given a glimpse into heaven that goes beyond what he has had before. What the text says is, I saw heaven open before he's been given these glimpses and these windows. And he's got appeared into heaven through peepholes and windows and doorways. But now heaven's floor has been peeled back and he is seeing exactly what God wants him to see. And he is seeing not the Lamb but the lion who is coming and Jesus sitting on the white horse of victory. Because you see what would have happened is that when the Roman conquerors would have gone out and these generals would have gone out, they would have gone on these campaigns, but yet when they came back into the city, they had their war horse, right? They had that stallion and that steed that was going to to do everything for them in battle and be there with them forever. But when they came home, they wanted to demonstrate perfect everything had gone and so they would sit upon a white horse and they would stride into the town and everyone would understand that he had been completely victorious in his campaign and we see sitting on this white horse one that he gives such a beautiful picture of 
Listen to what he says. He says, his eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head were many diadems, many crowns, many jewels, many bands showing his reign and his rule. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. You see, John's revelation is a revelation about Jesus Himself. That's what Scripture tells us in the very opening of the book. In chapter 1, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you want to know how to study, and you should study the book of Revelation, it is a re- first and foremost the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things which must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angels and his servants, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. It reminds us of John chapter 1 when John makes us remember that the word of God was in the beginning, was with God. It was active in creation and yet the word of God still came down and dwelt among us and became flesh for us. All of this. But yet he gives us another picture. This is the same description that John gives in Revelation 1, beginning in verse 13, of the one who's going to stand in the midst of the seven lampstands. In verse 13 of chapter 1, And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Listen to this. His eyes were like the flame of fire. Do you understand who we're talking? Same God who walked amongst the lampstands of the churches and wrote the letters to the churches is the same God who's coming to redeem them and to save them physically and forever and permanently. The flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roars of many waters. This is the lion, not the lamb, folks. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Can you imagine with me this image? Can you imagine this Jesus sitting on the white horse of victory gathered together in heaven, and yet not by himself, but behind him the armies of the Lord of hosts have gathered. I don't know about you, but for me, that's an exciting image. That's an exciting picture. I want you to just think about this, because here's what I also want you to understand. That's who Jesus is now. Okay? Jesus was a baby in the manger. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus hung on a cross, died, and was raised again. But the one you're going to face in eternity and in judgment is the one that John describes in the book of Revelation and is sitting on the white horse of victory. I never attempt to scare people into coming to know God, but I want you to understand the truth of what you will face. 
looking at with this Jesus. The picture that John gives us in the veiling. I can't imagine standing there arrayed with the armies of the world and the nations that are about to be destroyed as Jesus on his horse with the armies of God stand in front of me opposed to me. But ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, everyone who can hear my voice, that is who you will face at the judgment day. You're not going to meet baby Jesus when you stand before the throne of God. You're not going to meet hippie Jesus when you stand before the throne of God. You're going to meet God in all his royal regalia and as one with a face like that shines like the sun, whose eyes are flames of fire, giving you the perfect understanding that he sees all, he knows all, he understands all, and that nothing has been hidden from his view. Jesus that stands in judgment over this world. That should strike awe into our hearts as believers. For those of you who don't know him as Lord and Savior, it should strike fear into your heart. Because let me tell you, I know him, I love him, I know that his spirit rests inside of me, but yet when I see that picture, that image of that Jesus, I tremble and my knees shake because of who he is. He is God Almighty coming to take on and destroy his enemies. And if you don't know him, you are opposed to him, and if you are opposed to him, you are an enemy of God, but there is hope for you because what the scripture tells us is that yet while we were still enemies, he sent Christ into the world so that he might die, so that we would not have to be enemies for eternity, that we would not see that face of Jesus with complete fear and trembling. But that, ladies and gentlemen, that we could see even as he is sitting on the white horse of victory, regaled in all of his royal ornaments, he is still marked with his passion and the blood that is poured out, that his robe is dipped in. I believe to be the, the blood that Jesus poured out on the cross. Because see, in this image, in this picture, this is before the battle has been waged. This is before the battle has taken place. This is before God has destroyed his enemies. There are plenty who would disagree and say that's the, the blood of those who have stood in opposition to God. And that's a perfectly acceptable understanding because it's going to tell you this. It's going to tell you that either you are covered by the blood of Jesus or Jesus is going to be covered in your blood. You take your pick. All of that's coming. That's going to happen. That's a reality. But we see the marks of his passion even as he's sitting on the white horse of victory. 
and he is we are reminded that he is the everlasting word of God who came and dwelt among us. And I want you to notice that the die has been cast at this point. Everything is set. Everything is in place. Because you see what's happened here is that God, Jesus is on his, on his horse. He's riding as if into battle. And behind him is his army. They're already there. And that means his enemies are in front of him. The decision has been made. The die has been cast. A lot has been chosen. It is what it is. There's no going back from this moment on. Jesus comes with one fell swoop of the sharp, sharp double-edged sword that flows from his mouth. He will wipe out the nations and all of his enemies. If you want to see what that's going to look like, just continue reading later on chapter 19, verse 17 and following. It's a pretty gruesome sight. And God's enemies stand before him in complete and total failure. After the mercy and the grace and the patience and the love that he had shown, having poured out his own blood so that he did not have to take yours. here of this vat of grapes and crushing the wine and if you understand what's happening here they would have they would have had this big vat and it would have been trampled on by men and, and women at this time and they would have gotten in there and they would have crushed every single little grape till every piece and drop of juice were to have run out that's what God will do to his enemies completely and totally will not remit we'll see the connections here from Isaiah 9 into Revelation 19 we see the names that, that Jesus was called in Revelation 9 and we see this new name that gives us the understanding back in verse 12 that we don't know everything there is to know about God we can't handle everything there is to know about God. And then we see that it's God Almighty whose wrath is being poured out. The same one. This big, big picture Trinitarian view of God that these two passages give us. We see the prophecy of Psalm 2 coming to fruition in Revelation 19. But we also see, for those of us who know him, a great moment. King of kings and Lord of lords is at hand. That day that we have been so anxiously awaiting has finally come. Jesus has returned for his second advent and he will rule.
don't want to face this Jesus in opposition, in rebellion to him. Because when that when the Spirit of God is pricking at your heart, when you are in the throes of rebellion, when you are just simply rejecting the call of the Spirit of God on your life, as so many people do every time they hear the truth of God's Word proclaimed, it's not baby Jesus that you reject. It's not hippie Jesus that you reject. It's not Jesus on the cross that you're rejecting. It's the mighty warrior Jesus seated on the horse of victory that you rebel against and reject. That's what you look for. Disciples of Christ, I want you to understand out of this text the urgency proclamation of the full Jesus and the full gospel to those around us who so desperately need to hear because that is who they will face. And we should not want that for anybody. If we do, then we need to go back to our relationship to him and see if it really exists. We should see the urgency because as I read Scripture and as I look at all of these things, the first advent has come. And I can see nothing that prevents the second advent from happening right now. He is coming back. He is going to reign. He's going to restore his enemies and he's going to call his children to himself. Which one will you be? But know this, O Lamb God, Jesus will reign forever. Let us pray.